podcasting worldwide via the internet from Lakeland, Florida. This is Whitfield Radio's Calvinism Today program. And now, here is your host, the founder and president of Whitfield Theological Seminary and senior pastor of Christ Presbyterian Church in Lakeland, Florida, Dr. Kenneth G. Talbot. Welcome to our podcast, Calvinism Today. This show is dedicated to the preservation of historic Calvinistic theology to be preserved in our churches. We also are going to be dealing with many misconceptions of Calvinism and its continual drift away from those claiming to have been a Calvinist, but in reality are not Calvinist at all. Many teaching things that are not true to historic Calvinism. My co-host is Dr. Matthew McMahon, president of A Puritan's Mind, a website dedicated to maintaining the teachings of the Reformed and Puritan theologians. Dr. Matt is also a minister in the Reformed Presbyterian Church General Assembly. Welcome, Dr. Matt, and thank you again for coming and participating as a host on our show. Well, thank you, Dr. Talbot, for having me. Always a pleasure. Dr. Bill Sullivan is joining us again. Dr. Bill, it's good to have you with us. It's great to be here. I want to hear more about Augustine and the Doctrines of Grace. Well, our show's entitled Augustine, the Doctrines of Grace, Part 2. But if you would, Dr. Matt, would you please uh, talk just for a minute about a Puritan's mind and how people can go to that website if they haven't been there, and then any new publications from the publishing arm, Puritan Publications. Sure. Uh, a Puritan's mind houses a number of articles, uh, lots of articles, thousands of them uh, at this point, some of the largest uh, sections of works by Edwards, works by the Puritans like William Ames and Christopher Love uh, at www.apuritansmind.com. And uh, I update that all the time. Uh, there are many uh, new articles that we put out there. As a matter of fact, uh, some of the things that we're going over here have uh, also been put out on A Puritan's Mind concerning uh, the doctrines of grace in the early church, uh, Augustine on the doctrines of grace, and even some uh, future radio programs I think we're going to tackle on uh, the doctrines of grace during the Middle Ages. So there's lots of stuff on A Puritan's Mind to be able to read and study. Uh, But we've also uh, jettisoned out a little bit into Puritan Publications, which is the publishing arm of uh, Puritan's Mind. And we've put out uh, a number of Puritan works that have never been published before. Uh, We're working uh, right now on uh, a book by Jeremiah Burroughs called uh, The Saints' Inheritance and the Worldlings Portion. Uh, We just finished Acquainted with God by James Janoway, uh, The Holy Fire of Zeal and Other Works by Samuel Ward. Uh, We've got a number of books that are in the works, uh, but we've also done uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith, the 1647 version, that's with proof text by the King James Version, which is what uh, Westminster used when they first put together the confession. So that particular volume is a bit special. Uh, It's the original 1647 version, and all of the subordinate documents with all of the scripture proofs uh, outlined and quoted throughout the work. So uh, what we're trying to do is we're trying to get out good, solid, helpful, reformed and Puritan works that uh, either haven't been out or we've taken some of them and we've modernized the language a bit to bring it up for modern day readers. For example, I'm currently working on a treatise of Delighting in God by John Howe, which is one of his most popular and a fabulous work on how the Christian is to delight himself in God through Jesus Christ as his duty. And, uh, you know, a lot of people, uh, even though the Puritans are great, a lot of people will not read uh, some of that old English text. So we're taking some of these works and we're updating the language so that it reads in modern English without losing the intention or thought of the author and uh, we're just really excited about what God's doing in publishing a lot of these Puritan books. Excellent, Dr. Matt. Well, listen, let's get back to Augustine. We were talking about Augustine 
and the doctrines of grace and his contribution the last time. We're looking particular at how many doctrinal positions that clearly you're spelling out. If you did not know the difference, you wouldn't know that it was him or Calvin writing them. So if you would, Dr. Matt, let's continue with your presentation. Okay, great. Um, well, as we talked about, Augustine's paradigm is the complete and utter sovereignty of God over all things. And that includes those whom he predestines to heaven and those whom he predestines to hell. Uh, when we get more particular into the theological language, uh, we talked about predestination being something that God does to heaven and to hell, uh, but God elects believers to heaven and reprobates people to hell. Uh, we talked about uh, how Augustine, in his work on the predestination of the saints, said things uh, like, as I'll quote now, See concerning what Paul gives thanks, that the apostles are a sweet savor of Christ unto God, both in those who are saved by his grace and those who perish by his judgment. But in order that those who little understand these things may be less enraged, he himself gives the warning when he adds the words, and who is sufficient for these things. So even in the midst of uh, Augustine's understanding of Paul, talking about salvation in Romans, that God predestinates some to heaven, predestinates others to hell, that people are saved by grace, that they're punished in judgment and they perish. Uh, even those who might be upset, uh, just like Paul, uh, ahead of time, deals with the idea that people are going to be upset with this teaching. You're not going to like this teaching. He says, who is sufficient for these things, even to understand the deep things of God in these ways? We know, as Augustine said, some of these things are very plain. They are the plainest of the sacred writings, as we discussed last time. Um, uh, in points where, like he says in, in his Enchiridion, the Lord was unwilling to work miracles in the presence of some who, he said frankly, would have repented if he had worked them. Uh, some of those kinds of statements that Augustine makes based on what he's uh, learning from Paul, what he's learning from Christ, as we talked about, that God in his sovereignty determines uh, the outcome and predestines some to heaven and some to hell. And then we talked a little bit, and we just started to get into being preserved in the sense that the perseverance of the saints or the preservation of the saints is something that Augustine talks quite a bit about. Uh, the scripture uses the word preservation and to preserve uh, a number of different times. Uh, 2 Timothy 4.18 uh, specifically says, and the Lord shall deliver me from every evil work and will preserve me under his heavenly kingdom. So Augustine has an entire work, just as he talked about predestination, he has an entire work that deals with the preservation of the saint. And uh, he also has on the gift of perseverance. And these works deal with this idea. Listen to what he says uh, here and on the gift of perseverance in section two. Because perseverance is much more difficult when the persecutor is engaged in preventing a man's perseverance, and therefore he is sustained in his perseverance unto death. Hence, it is more difficult to have the former perseverance, easier to have the latter. But to him, that is God, to whom nothing is difficult, it's easy to give both. For God has promised the saying, I will put my fear in their hearts, that they may not depart from me. And what else is this then? Such and so great shall be my fear that I will put into their hearts that they will perseveringly cleave to me. So as we talked about the last time, Augustine is saying that perseverance is a gift. Not only is the capacity to have faith a gift from being rescued from the fall and being rescued from our condemnation in Adam, not only is election and everything and all of the processes that go into that a gift, but even after the heart is changed, even after someone is regenerate, even after they have this divine gift, as Augustine said, at the same time, it is that God works in 
those believers to persevere, and he enables them by the power of his spirit to perseveringly cleave to God. So from nuts, from soup soup to bolts, regardless of what it is that we're talking about in terms of salvation, everything is accomplished in the believer's life, uh, being elected and continuing to the fruition of that election, ultimately being glorified in heaven, is done by God. It's God's gift. Listen to what he says in section 9. Now, moreover, when the saints say, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, what do they pray for, but that they may persevere in holiness? For assuredly, when that gift of God is granted to them, again, Augustine calls perseverance a gift, which is sufficiently plainly shown to be God's gift, since it is asked of him, that gift of God, then being granted to them, that they may not be led into temptation. So what he's saying is, is even in the basics, remember, perseverance deals with the basics of the Christian life. Even with the basics of praying, lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil, he's saying this is God's gift. It's granted to us. We pray for it, that we would receive that gift, that we might not be led into temptation. He says, none of the saints fails to keep his perseverance and holiness even to the end. For there is not any, anyone who ceases to persevere in the Christian purpose unless he is first of all led into temptation. If therefore it be granted to him according to his prayer that he may not be led into temptation, certainly by the gift of God he persists in that sanctification which by the gift of God he has received. So he, he's being redundant, saying, listen, we, even when we pray the basics and say we need to be delivered from temptation, uh, we need to be delivered from evil, we don't want to be uh, falling into those sins, that is a gift of God built upon the previous gift of God, which is electing us, which is giving us faith, which is now also sanctifying us, which we've received from him. So it's not something that we do ourselves. It's something that the Spirit does in us, even in our sanctification. All of our righteous deeds are as filthy rags, the prophet tells us. And so Augustine is building on that, continuing with those reformed ideas that we're sanctified by the gift of God. Dr. Matt, in essence then, we would say from election to resurrection. This is all of grace. It is a gift of God. This is all given to us, including the regeneration and then the sanctification. As we progress through that, we are being maintained by the grace of God. It is is holy of grace. There's nothing, even our perseverance, even the production of the fruit, while we are clearly commanded to be active in pursuing these things, nevertheless, they come forth by the grace of God in us. Right. So that right. it is never our effort by ourselves, but our effort is even the work of God's grace pulling us forward, as that were. In other words, it sustains us to be able to accomplish the good works, the fruits that we produce in our life. Correct. And that and will it, be to the day of the resurrection. It will always be something that is of faith. Right. And that's exactly where Augustine goes. He says, for we're speaking of that perseverance whereby one perseveres unto the end. So he's not talking about just daily things. He's talking about from the beginning until forever. Uh, he says, if this is given, if this gift is given, one does persevere unto the end. But if one does not persevere unto the end, it is not given. So he's just showing you're telling a tree by its fruit. So within that, someone says, well, what do we do with someone who says, for example, uh, this person has fallen into sin. Has he fallen from grace? Augustine would say, no, he's only proven that he was never a receiver of grace. That's how he would identify them. 
that's how he would have identified him, but there's going to be a qualification that Augustine would place on that. So what is that qualification? The qualification is is that he's going to ask you whether or not you're talking about uh, the counsel of God being sovereignly powerful over the election or non-election of that individual. Is that what you're talking about? Or are you talking about the daily need for human beings in the church community to look at one another to determine, based on what we see, whether or not that person is walking with God or not. Excellent. So there's going to be a difference there, where you don't want to make a blanket statement and say, well, because so-and-so fell into sin, thus he doesn't have this. That's why the Lord Jesus gave us church discipline for us to deal with things that happen on a human level and perspective, where Augustine here, even though he's dealing with the daily grind of the Christian life and what we do and exhorting us to persevere in it, he's also setting the foundation of that perseverance to be the gift which God has given that perseveres unto the end. And simply because you do one thing doesn't suddenly negate what God does. Listen to what he says here. Uh, uh, Allah David, king of Israel. Exactly. Allah David, Allah, pick a biblical character. (laughs) But since no one has perseverance to the end, except he who does persevere to the end, many people may have it, but none could lose it. So he's he's saying that even when you get to thinking about this, if somebody has the gift of perseverance, the gift of perseverance doesn't mean that he doesn't sin. What it does mean is that he perseveres to the end and wholly relies by faith on Christ and the work that he's done, demonstrating he's a tree that produces good fruit. And we are only accepted, that even as we looked at uh, just briefly in the, in the last program, accepted on the merit of what Christ has done, not on something that we have done. We cannot be, and this may be a difficult concept, but Augustine talks about this, we, we are not going to be any more righteous and perfect in terms of our acceptance with God that we are right now. Because Jesus Christ cannot be any more righteous or perfect, and it is by his merit in which I am declared righteous and accepted. Thus our state is as right and just before God, which is the state of our justification. We are right with God, and that is as full as that can be. But that does not deal with the progression of our personal life. Correct. Correct. Um, which is why he, he uses the, the prayer of lead us not into temptation all through on the gift of perseverance a number of times over and over right. again to really bring these ideas in place. He says, therefore, God is powerful both to turn wills from evil to good and to convert those that are inclined to fall or to direct them into a way pleasing to himself. He can do all of those things. It yes. talks about justification and salvation and sanctification. If not vainly, not minded of what he said, none can lose it. So it's not such a, a glib thing for somebody to look at somebody else and say, oh, this person did such and such and such and such, and they committed that sin, they must not be saved. No, that's, that's not even how Jesus deals with the way church discipline works in sanctification. We're to go to them, we're to encourage them, uh, we then take someone with us, we then bring them before the church. There's a process to make that happen in order to press them to repent of whatever it is that they might have fallen into. Right. But that process of sanctification is a demonstration, is a fruit of exactly what Augustine is talking about in perseverance. If you really are saved, you really have the gift, you really have been changed, then you are going to do those things to move into a further holiness. As Jonathan Edwards said, I, I resolve to be better in religion today than the day before. Very good. He says, uh, Augustine says, in another section, as we deal with why we persevere, he talks about uh, being predestined, and he talks about uh, 
being changed and being saved. Listen to what he says here. Let the inquirer still go on and say, why is it that some who have in good faith worshipped him? He is not given to persevere to the end. A lot of people go to church. Mm -hmm. A lot of people listen to the sermon. A lot of people go to Sunday school. A lot of people get baptized. A lot of people are in godly families. Why doesn't he give them all the ability to persevere to the end? Why, except because he does not speak falsely, who says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they have been of us, doubtless they would have continued with us. So he brings it right into the practical realm of you've got to deal with the regular, everyday, how do people act, how do they think, how do they talk, how do they walk? If we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Amos says, can two walk together unless they be agreed? Obviously, that has great ramifications when we talk about God and the sinner. But even so, when we talk about the believer and another believer, you can tell where people are at. So he continues and he says, Are there then two natures of men? By no means. If there were two natures, there would not be any grace, for there would be given a gratuitous deliverance to none if it were paid as a debt to nature. Mm -hmm. But it seems to men that all who appear good believers ought to receive perseverance to the end. But God has judged it to be better to mingle some who would not persevere with a certain number of his saints, so that those for whom security from temptation in this life is not desirable may not be secure. For that which the apostle says checks many from mischievous elation. And he says this, quote, Wherefore let him who seems to stand take heed lest he fall. But he who falls, falls by his own will, and he who stands, stands by God's will. For God is able to make him stand. Therefore, he is not able to make himself stand, but God. So he's showing the difference between you know, people who go to church that are just professors of religion and people who are actually persevering. God is the one able to do that. This is the exact same things that the Puritans taught, that William Perkins taught, that Calvin taught, that Luther taught, uh, talking about God preserves the Christian and enables him to be more sanctified. He is the one that is able to make him stand. It is not in and of ourselves. It is a gift that God has to give us even to be sanctified. People don't like that sometimes because they like the idea of being able to do something righteous in and of themselves. Or and, and some religions are teaching that while God may offer grace, it still is dependent upon man to maintain himself uh, in that state of relationship through his meritorious efforts. And that mm-hmm. in the final judgment, justification will be determined and only then. And of course, that's one aspect of Roman Catholic theology. Mm-hmm. And he bases perseverance and that sanctification on particular redemption. And he talks about that on the gift of perseverance in section 21, about particular redemption, about Christ coming and dying specifically. This is what he says. But of two pious men, why to the one should be given perseverance unto the end, and to the other it should not be given? God's judgments are even more unsearchable. Yet to believers, it ought to be a most certain fact that the former is of the predestinated that is, to eternal life, the latter is not. For if they have been of us, says one of the predestinated, who had drunk this secret from the breast of the Lord, certainly they would have continued with us. Nevertheless, in respect of a certain other distinction, they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they certainly would have continued with us. What then is this distinction? God's books lie open. Let us not turn away our view. The divine scripture cries aloud, let us give it a hearing. They were not of them because they had been not called according to the purpose. They had not been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. They had not gained a lot in him. They had not been predestinated according to his purpose who works all things. For if they had been this, they would have been of them. And without a doubt, they would have continued with them. Hmm. Augustine is so clear here. 
drinking of what Christ has accomplished on behalf of his people. And the people who kind of come and go, the people who go out were really among us, dealing with what John was teaching and showing if they had stayed, they, we would have seen they're predestinated from the foundation of the world. We can see by the purpose of God who works all things and the outworking of that salvation in their lives and being preserved, being particularly redeemed by Christ and God's election. Here you have the same principle given in Hebrews chapter 6. Mm-hmm. Those who have tasted. Uh, there were those who have heard the word. There was those who probably participated actually even in the miracles because even non-believers were uh, receiving miracles. Yet, he says they have fallen away. They fall away from that which they had participated in, not that they have fallen from the electing grace of God, but from that which they had professed, that which mm. they had seemed to follow, yet in reality, they never were partakers of it. Right, right. And Augustine is so set on really dealing, uh, in just about every book that he writes, in some measure of perseverance, he says in the Predestination of the Saints, in section three, or book three, he says, now, however... I am arguing not concerning the beginning of faith, of which I've already spoken much in the former book, but of that perseverance, which must be had to the end, which is certainly even the saints who do the will of God seek when they say, thy will be done. So for him, it's not even something that's uh, sort of a part of the Christian life. It's not just part of it. The perseverance must be part of the idea and scope of what redemption and salvation is about because of how he understands what Christ has accomplished and what God has done in election of men to eternal life. Thus, it is not just sufficient to know the doctrine, but it is the outworking of the doctrine in your life daily. So when one does not set forth the fruit of the Spirit in their life, the fruit of perseverance, let me say it that way, they really betray themselves. When you cannot tell the difference of their attitude, having been transformed by the renewing of their mind, that their outlook, their approach to people, the way that they deal with people, I mean, we see this on the Internet all the time, the anger and the hatred and the, the, the uh, way that people treat other people. It, it would make somebody like Augustine look and say, where is the perseverance of your life? You may say you know the doctrine, but Augustine's saying it's not enough to say it. This perseverance that comes all the way back from the sovereign election of God must be lived out to the end of your profession, which is not that you are working to be saved, but as one who is saved, this is the outworking of salvation in you. Right, right. He um, and he really, really presses often the preserving power of God in that, and uses the word "gift" to us all of the time. He says, "Only grace works. Every one of our good merits in us. Right? That in and of itself, only grace, only by grace. Every one of anything that we would do that would be sanctifyingly helpful is only by grace." And God, when he crowns our merits, when he looks at when he looks at us and he says, well done, thou good and faithful servant, quote, crowns nothing other than his own gifts. Mm. Uh, what is God excited about? Uh, God is not excited about me. God is excited about seeing Christ in me and seeing his image reflected back to him. That's what excites him. And when he says, good and faithful servant, he simply, which I love the way Augustine says it, crowns nothing other than what he has done in me. He's, yes. he's crowning his own gifts, his work in us. If you take Christ away from me, just to use myself right now, what are you left with? If you take the Spirit, Christ, God's work away from me, <laughs> you're left with somebody who should be utterly detested in Adam, fallen, wicked, evil. But what God 
crowns, what God loves, what he is excited about is Christ in me. And you know, the, the thing that I think that I, I like on this emphasis, and I think you see it sometimes as you get on when you hear about the various monasteries and, and men who are wanting to persevere in their holiness and they're trying to find a way to escape from the sins and the temptations of the world. What he's saying is you can't imitate this gift. You right. can't imitate this grace. If you imitate it, you can espouse the principle, but it's not it, with the Puritans, and, and they really pick up on this, and I think they get it because Calvin picks up on this as well. When one is truly persevering, that outgrowth in his life must be manifest. Thus the necessity of Calvin and the Puritans and the Reformers would say, one must be a part of the Church of Christ, always having their life under the scrutiny of the elders of the church, Mm. being watched carefully. Their souls are being watched for, and they're watching for them in the fruit that they bear. And that fruit, part of that perseverance, that outworking, we have to watch the false imitators because they are imitators of Christ, but they are not truly partakers. You know, I heard heard this given as an illustration, and I thought it was a magnificent illustration. It's one thing to be a disciple. For example, if I said I was a disciple, or, 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 or let's say a student of Karl Marx versus a disciple, what is the difference between them? The student of Karl Marx is someone who simply studies his philosophy. He understands it, he knows it, he can articulate it, present it, but he doesn't live it. But a disciple of Karl Marx is somebody who not only knows it, but he implements it every day in his life. He lives to that goal. There's the difference between imitators of Christ and those who are truly in Christ. Imitators in Christ are students, many of them, students. They study the doctrine, they even maybe know the doctrine, but they don't know the life. They don't right. know that power. They don't experience it. And there, there's a, a desire to do righteous. A desire not to tear down, but to build up the kingdom of God. When that is absent, what you have is only evidence of a false imitation of Christ. Not one who is persevering in his faith to the mm. end. Absolutely. Right. Uh, this is really I, important stuff, Dr. Matt. I mean, this, what you're presenting to us. Man, you, you got to wonder how, the, you got to wonder how we got off track. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What were the medieval scholastics thinking when they read this stuff? Well, you know, interestingly enough, uh, you know, God did not leave himself without a witness. Absolutely. I agree. You know, and there's uh, a lot of medieval scholastics that, uh, you know, we'll talk about in another program that uh, did believe exactly what Augustine said, which weren't necessarily Augustinian monks. No, no. And which is an amazing thing uh, in the way that God has providentially worked throughout the history of the church to, you know, keep that witness and keep the gospel and, and, uh, shine his light upon it in every age mm-hmm. uh, in our age we need uh, we need to read Augustine more you know, Absolutely. people need to read Augustine it's interesting if I go into um, you know computers nowadays are pretty amazing and when uh, I save a document I place it in a folder I go into that folder and there's thousands of documents in there on all sorts of different people uh, lots of things that Uh, I'm working on for publishing lots of things that I read, lots of articles that have been written. uh, And I organize things in that folder, like a little filing cabinet. And if I go right at the beginning right now, which I just did just a moment ago, and I type in the word Augustine and hit enter, what that search capability does is it looks inside all the documents that are in that file and it pulls up every instance where the word Augustine takes place and how much influence Augustine had just Uh in the sense that I get thousands of hits inside all of those documents, everything from books written by Jeremiah Burroughs, who will say, and Augustine said, Uh or Uh Samuel Ward, 
uh, one of the precursors to Puritanism or Henry Smith, one of the precursors, Augustine said, Austin says, you'll hear them always say Austin, they're talking about Augustine, Mm -hmm. Austin says, and they're going back to these basic fundamental biblical doctrines that the early church believed, that Augustine believed, that Paul taught, and we need to get back to. Well, in actuality, I'm sitting here thinking of exactly what you're saying, and I think about how today we look back to Calvin, but in Calvin's day, they're looking back to Augustine. Oh, yeah. and, and here again, we truncate a more broad-based understanding of our theology when we don't study these things carefully, uh, coming up through the early church, even into the medieval time period, uh, beginning at the medieval ages with Augustine. And, and thus, we think Calvin is the originator of things, and Calvin does originate things. And Calvin does systematize things. Augustine never quite put it into proper perspective. Here again, consider that he's writing, though, such early time period versus time having gone, the, the Canada Scripture completed, and they're moving forward, and now he's pulling things together. Calvin being the last great systematician who is doing those, what I would call, really hard nuances of systematic theology. He's pulling them all together. But you can't do it without the work of this man. It's impossible. That's how important this man becomes. To Mm. not know Augustine is to literally cut off our nose to spite our face if we say we're reformers, that this is what the church really believed. Because we're we're simply walking from one part of our history as if someone else owns or claims that one and has the right to it, when in reality it is our right, it is our heritage. Not heritage as in that we follow their traditions that men create as they go along, but in the theology they taught that came out of the Scripture, not by the doctrines of men. Right, right. It's uh, it's interesting that... I, one of the reasons I think that people don't like hearing what we've been talking about over the last couple of programs, regardless of who says it, or even if we pulled straight out of the Bible, which uh, I'll note in a second has the exact same kind of uh, response whenever you deal with this topic. Mm -hmm. I mean, keep in mind, this topic is essential. It is redemption. Mm -hmm. So when you you deal with the gospel, when you deal with redemption, uh, a lot of times people don't like thinking too much about it because when you start thinking too much about it and thinking about all the different avenues that this goes down and things that we have to deal with, we're always getting into, I don't like the idea that God does this sovereignly and I don't get to do it myself. Exactly. And Paul obviously talked about that in Romans 9. Listen to what Augustine says uh, again. Even in this section on perseverance in chapter 17, he shows the difficulty of the distinction made in the choice of one person and the rejection of another. He says, but why is it, is it said in one and the same case, not only in infants, but even of twin children, is the judgment so diverse? In other words, God chooses one, doesn't choose the other. We don't like that. It's not something we can control. Is it not a similar question? Why, in a different case, is the judgment the same? Let us recall, then, those laborers in the vineyard who worked the whole day, and those who toiled one hour. Certainly the case was different as to the labor expended, and yet there was the same judgment in paying the wages. Did the murmurers, in this case, hear anything from the householder except, such is my will? Certainly... Such was his liberality towards some that there could be no injustice towards others. And both these classes indeed are among the good. Nevertheless, so far as it concerns justice and grace, it may be truly said to the guilty who is condemned, also concerning the guilty who is delivered, take what is thine and go your way. Matthew 20, 14. I will give unto this one that which is not due. Is it lawful for me to do what I will? Is thine eye evil because I am good? And how, if you should say, why not to me also? He will hear, and with reason, who art thou, O man, that replies against God? Romans 9.20. And although assuredly in the one case you see a most benignant benefactor, and in your own case, a most righteous exactor, in neither case do you behold an unjust God. For although 
he would be righteous even if he were to punish both. He who is delivered has good ground for thankfulness. He who is condemned has no ground for finding fault. So, you know, in, in dealing with this idea, he he always, he, as we've seen, even from the last program, even to the, some of the ones that we've quoted here, he's always going back to this, you know, a lot of people just practically don't like dealing with the doctrine because they don't like that God has the choice. And it's hard to deal with it. And it's emotionally difficult because we have friends and we have moms and dads and brothers and sisters and people that we know at work that are godless heathens, but we don't know what God's going to do with them. But we don't like the idea that we don't have a control specifically over how salvation occurs and that we didn't do something in it. It's, it's interesting how the apostles dealt with hard teaching in that way because everybody thinks, well, Jesus was so meek and mild when, when there was something hard that he taught. He just let everybody believe whatever, you know, whatever they'd like to believe. <laughs> uh, no, but that's not what he does. I mean, think about how he dealt with the people, uh, the, the Jews and the disciples, the, these disciples following him. In John chapter 6, the moment he starts getting into this craziness, for my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed, and he that eats my flesh and drinks my blood dwells in me and I in him. As the living Father has sent me, and as I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. Mm-hmm. This is that bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever. These things said he in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they had heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can hear it? So Jesus, and listen to what the text says, when Jesus saw that this was such a difficult teaching, he coddled them and he loved them. No, it doesn't say that. It says, when Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it, he said unto this, does this offend you? What and if you shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before? It is the spirit that quickeneth. The flesh profits nothing. Mm-hmm. The words that I speak unto you, their spirit, their life. But there are many of you that believe not. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray him. And he said, therefore I say unto you that no man can come to me except it were given unto him by my father. And what does the text say? From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. And so Jesus turned around to the apostles and he said to them, oh, my apostles, you're not going to leave, are you? No, he doesn't say that. He says, there's the door. Jesus says unto the 12, will ye also go away? And what is their reaction to that? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, To, to, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Mm-hmm. This is hard, and we don't really get it. And it's a hard teaching. And we don't necessarily like it, which is why Augustine always comes back to, listen, who are you that reply against God? God says something. I mean, I, I've talked to, you know, uh, to use an example, I've talked to Arminian teachers. I remember I went to an Arminian Bible college, and I remember being a Calvinist, being saved out of all of the hoopla of the Arminian way of thinking, right in the middle of going to school at an Arminian college. Think about how that went down. And going into the class on Romans and listening to the Arminian professor talk about all the different ways he's trying to wiggle out of everything up to Romans chapter 9, and he stops at Romans 9, the class ends, and I go, what are you doing with Romans 9? He goes, well, you know, I'm going to be honest with you. When I get to Romans 9, my theology falls apart. <laughs> that's a good answer. That, that was a quote. Yeah, that's a, well, that at least a, he's honest. <laughs> yeah, quote from the theology professor <clears throat> teaching the other students in the school. Right, the people who are supposed to be, you know, future pastors and so forth. His theology falls apart when he hits uh, God's sovereign election. So, in thinking about what Augustine is saying here, he showed us that God is sovereign, and that God, according to His own will, predestined some to heaven, 
predestines others to hell. And that's done by his own good pleasure. It's done based on what God has done for the elect in Christ Mm. and what he has not done for the reprobate. And demonstrates that if God has saved us, continues to help us to persevere unto the end so that he will lose nothing that the Father has given him. Mm. A little difficult to swallow. In the beginning, I would say that when Christians, when real Christians hit this section of understanding the basics of redemption, and this is the basics of the redemption, this is what Augustine said at the beginning when we talked about it in the last program, he says this is the plain meaning of scripture. Remember, this is the hermeneutics that Augustine has in dealing with the plain meaning of what the Bible says. This is the plain meaning of scripture. This is redemption. When you're a new believer and you're dealing with these things and you're thinking them through, there's no other avenue to go down other than to fall flat on your face and thank God for his grace, Mm -hmm. which is where Augustine brings everyone ultimately in many of the quotes that we've already looked at. It's by grace. It's his gift. It's what he gives us. And yet the the remaining sin within the believer, though he has been justified, and he stands complete in Christ in his state of justification. That remnant of sin that is still there is continuing to try to get him to rebel against the sovereignty of God. Yeah, it's the, uh, it's the ever difficult uh, problem that even we as believers have in trying to revive the old man which is dead. You know, the shackles have been thrown off. And in our sin, in our uh, habitual sin that easily besets us, you know, we try to take those shackles and put them back on. And it's by a divine gift that God continues to sanctify us and bring us into the image ultimately conformed into Christ. So all of these things that we've looked at, whether it be the fall, original sin, God's sovereignty, election, Uh, predestination one way or the other, sanctification, the work of the Spirit in us, in sanctification. All of these things are found in Augustine's writings um, consistently. And even some of the things that he wrote in his earlier days, he even has a retraction of which he corrects some of his faulty thinking to submit Everything that he has, especially with some of these later writings, like on the predestination of the saints and on the uh, perseverance of the saints and the Enchiridion and some of these things that he corrected and, and, and massaged as he went through his theological life, uh, all have these basic reformed teachings of the doctrines of grace saturating everything he talked about. And that is a part of the roots of Calvinistic theology in our history. And, and it must be understood, it must be studied, it must be carefully considered. And I think students of theology who really want to be apt scholars need to go back and read Augustine. Understand there are going to be things that he, he does teach or adhere to in his practices that are not biblical. But at that time, considering the canon of scripture coming to an end and and you have, uh, they're working through the various books, determining those things, and I'm not sure if it was all determined, probably just prior to his coming on the scene. But within that concept of explaining all those things, he is so far head and shoulders above everybody from a systematic point of view. He is bringing together the variations of doctrines that have been put out in place, but yet have not been systematized with other doctrines. And he's weaving the, just weaving this theology together so that there is this coherency of thought about the whole effect of redemption. But on that paradigm, and I don't think we can emphasize it enough, the paradigm that Scripture expresses to us, it doesn't come apart from Scripture. You can't derive the sovereignty of God outside of the Word of God. I've heard people say that and what nonsense it is. You can only derive that principle from the word but for augustine as he derives it from the word he says this is the paradigm if you don't get this paradigm you're going to miss the rest of the theology because it won't fall into place it's impossible 
you're going to have mm-hmm. a theology like the professor you were talking about at some point. It's going to fall apart on you. Because you've got to begin as God expresses himself in the Scripture, in the totality of Scripture, in what he says and how he does. His purpose, the teleological aspects of everything that has been purposed from before the foundation of the world to come into its rightful place to the very end. And that's what you've been talking about. And when we miss that paradigm, and you put the wrong paradigm in place, it is going to skew all of your other theological thinking. At points, they will never be able to be reconciled. Amen. And that's what this great man does. That's why we look at him and we tip our hat and say, in spite of deficiencies, which I think in the context of the time we can understand some of them, uh, had he lived longer, would he, if he resolved some of those things? Uh, who knows at this point? That would be speculation. But we know the essence of his theology is coming right out of Pauline scholarship. Right. Yeah, Matt, I would definitely agree. Dr. And, Matt, uh, this has been I, an excellent presentation. That uh, note that you made about uh, the canon, I think, you know, I think all of that is very providential for Augustine, you know, just as a side note overall. Uh, 397 AD, you've got uh, Athanasius dealing with the canon of Scripture. That's right in the middle of Augustine's life. That would have been 10 years after he was baptized and uh, converted to Christianity. So, you know, to have him setting himself uh, set on the Scriptures, the sacred writings, set on that and uh, elaborating the doctrines of grace in all of these different ways, I think, uh, was him, for him providentially great. Although, as we've discussed before, even the other church believed many of these things, but he's the first to really formulate That's right. uh, a lot of these ideas fully. Which, you know, he that he bears the earmarks of a systematician. There, there are not, in my estimation, that many great systematicians in the history of the church. Maybe 20. I really question if I'm right on that. Uh, probably more like 10 to 15 men who I would consider true systematicians. I mean, there's a lot of good men in theology. But being a systematician is is head and shoulders of just being a good theologian. It's a man who is, and you, when you look at Augustine, you said something that I think is so true. He not only weaves this theological understanding together in a very coherent way, but then he begins to look at it in every aspect of life. He sees Christianity not as something we just believe or just practice personally, but it's a way that we approach life. What is required of us as believers? How are we to shape the world that we live in? And thus he realizes Christianity is more than the the four uh, walls of the church. It's just more than our walls Mm. within our home. It is a world and life system that must affect and this is where, I think, comes that outgrowth of the city of God. Right. Right. Well, Dr. Matt, this was excellent. Thank you for another wonderful presentation. And we're going to be coming back uh, in the near future. We'll, we're trying to get everything back on schedule again and have two presentations a month. We're going to be coming back next time. And uh, while we were originally going to have a uh, a one presentation on uh, medieval uh, theology and identifying Calvinism within it, one can clearly see that that presentation, no matter how short we try to make it, is going to still be two presentations. (laughs) So, but that's what happens when you're dealing with theology. You've got to look at all the nuances. There are things here that I know throughout the rest of this week, I'm going to be thinking on these things, on what we have said it's going to urge me to go back and look at some books that I've read. We need a really good, concise, and I mean a very good, concise book, maybe 100, 150 pages on Augustine and the Doctrines of Grace, because I think, Absolutely. Dr. Mahir, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of commissioning you. We need to understand this as a part of our heritage. Mm-hmm. It's important. We can't ignore it. It's impossible. So anyway, well, listen, thank you, Dr. Matt, so much for all your work uh, in this presentation. I hope that our listeners have gotten much out of this. It should uh, 
continue to drive you into thinking about these things, if you get the time, go back and look at some of these writings, the Confessions and the City of God. These are these are classical writings that really must be the part of every believer. And think about the things that you've heard, because we're progressing through the very roots that are essential to Calvinistic theology during the Reformation, of which we see in the very writings of Calvin himself. I think he encapsulates it more than anybody else. He encapsulates that whole concept, pulls it together, and now you see Augustine being expressed in probably the more pure form of what his theology and doctrines would express to us as we see him in Calvin. Two men locked together in the same mind of Christ, reading from the same text of Scripture, the things that are being taught by the apostles, and in particular in Pauline theology, which is so in-depth and expressed. Thank you, Dr. Matt. Thank you, Dr. Bill. We appreciate your being here and producing this. Any questions, Dr. Bill, before we go? No, I just have been uh, enjoying the program very much. I'm learning a lot. I've not been a uh, careful student of the work of Augustine. So this has been very helpful. I really appreciate the work that Dr. Matt has done here to bring these things to light. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Oh, absolutely. We're looking forward to the future, brother. And thank you for listening to our podcasts. Please keep us in your prayer. Support us with that prayer, if you would, and tell others about our program and encourage them to come and to listen. And uh, Lord, bless you and keep you until we meet again. Good night. Are you considering seminary education? Let Whitfield Theological Seminary provide your educational needs. Whitfield offers master and doctoral degree programs through distance education in ministry, theological studies, biblical counseling, and Christian education. You can complete your studies for the ministry or other church vocations in the privacy of your home in conjunction with your local church. For students who have never been to college, check out the Bachelor Divinity Degree Program. Whitfield also offers lay study programs. Go to www.whitfield.edu for additional information. Remember, Whitfield offers classical reform theological education. Whitfield Theological Seminary, training a new generation of ministers around the world to disciple the nations in the theology of the Reformation. Parents, are you looking for a college to send your children to in the near future? Hi, I'm Dr. Randall Talbot, the Executive Vice President and Academic Dean of Whitfield College. Let me share with you why I think you should consider Whitfield College. First, Whitfield brings a Christian college education home to you. We are a distant learning online institution. Second, Whitfield provides a biblical worldview college education. Third, affordability. Because we are a distance learning institution, we can provide a high academic education that you can afford. The average tuition for most online colleges is $300 or more per credit hour. At Whitfield, we charge $80 per credit hour. Fourth, graduates from Whitfield College are highly educated in the majors that we provide. We have graduates that have entered graduate schools all across the country in various different fields. Institutions like the University of Massachusetts of North Dartmouth, Liberty University Law School, and various seminaries. If you would like further information, you may visit the Whitfield College website at whitfieldcollege.org, or you may call the college offices at 863-683-7899. I am looking forward to hearing from you. A Puritan's Mind is a website dedicated to the gospel of Jesus Christ and the glory of God. Located at www.apuritansmind.com, its purpose is to help those visitors, over 50 million since 1998, to enjoy God and His gracious gospel of redemption through Jesus Christ. 
It's called the Puritan's Mind because it houses one of the largest selections of writings from the 17th century, covering Christian authors such as Alexander Henderson, Samuel Rutherford, Jeremiah Burroughs, and a whole host of Westminster ministers of the Puritan age. But that's not all. There are sections on the website on church history, historical theology, and doctrinal aspects covering justification, the doctrines of grace, family worship, Christian stewardship, and much, much more. A Puritan's mind has even reached out over into the Reformed book market with Puritan publications. We have published over a dozen works, including The Covenant of God by Thomas Blake, and one of the most popular introductions to covenant theology called A Simple Overview of Covenant Theology by Dr. Matthew McMahon. All works are available in digital formats as well. You can even acquire an all-in-one special DVD that contains many out-of-group works, sermons, and books from the Puritans and Reformers. Visit us at www.apuritansmind.com for more information and do all to the glory of God. You've been listening to Whitfield Radio. Whitfield Radio is a division of Whitfield College and Theological Seminary. Music is provided by our friend, Dr. Phil Kagey, and we encourage you to visit his website at philkagey.com, P-H-I-L-K-E-A-G-G-Y dot com. This is Dr. Bill Sullivan saying thank you for joining us and check out our website for the next scheduled show. Our website is whitfieldmedia.com W-H-I-T-E-F-I-E-L-D-M-E-D-I-A dot com whitfieldmedia.com Yeah.